Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say what's up, all, Colin. What's up, all, Colin? Yeah. I don't know what else to say anymore to make it fresh for you. I have to start, I'm going to start Dude, thinking about it. Yeah. Like, if you make it fresh every couple episodes, that's cool. But like, we should definitely keep the thematic part of it going. So like, you know, every <laughs> once in a while, you do something weird. I'll, I'll change it up. But only if you have a good idea. Like, Maybe one day. That one. was not good. Yeah, that was a terrible one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so today's episode, uh, we brought on uh, an OG in the crypto space, in my opinion, Thomas J. Rush, to talk about true blocks um, and uh, kind of get the word out on what he's done with um, software he's been building for a long time. I've personally known uh, TJ, Thomas J. J. goes by many names in the space since since around the DAO hack when we were trying to figure out what was happening, how it happened, um, what went wrong and how to fix it. Uh, so TJ, why don't you give us a quick introduction as to like how you got introduced into this space and, um, um, we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, uh, I tell people, um, ever since I was about nine, I've been, um, experiencing new computing environments and then running around with my hair on fire, telling people how exciting they are. So desktop computers, uh, web stuff back in the early 90s and uh, most recently uh, IOT just prior to um, getting into the blockchain space and then the blockchain and I've been on fire for about four years with the blockchain stuff so um, just prior to getting into the blockchain I was really into IOT and back then this was uh, mid to late 2015 if you were reading about IOT you bumped into Ethereum because um, Slocket was talking about using IoT and Ethereum to rent bicycles, basically, I think. And then from there, I got really heavily into the DAO and uh, just I had never seen anything so interesting. And I hope we can try to tease out exactly what it was that I found so interesting about the DAO when it was happening. Um, and then, of course, the hack and um, I was just kind of stunned when the hack happened because, um, first of all, we all at that time, at least some of us, me included, believed that it was impossible to hack a blockchain. And the distinction was a little fuzzy at the time, for me at least. And so it got hacked and that was just, you know, stunning. And then... We also, or at least I believed that you could get every piece of data instantaneously and worldwide. And then people started trying to get the data from the chain to understand what happened with the hack. And um, that also was just amazing how 
how difficult it was to get really good quality understanding and data from the chain. So that's kind of where True Blocks got started. I think that's a great way to start this to start this this conversation. Um, let's talk about the DAO and why you thought that was so interesting, or, or or what what it was doing that was so that was so revolutionary, and then how it got hacked. I mean, not necessarily how it got hacked. There's plenty of stuff on there, but like the the process of trying to pull information to figure out what happened and how that was so thwarting to you, which led to True Blocks, which we'll spend the rest of the time on. Yeah. So um, I mentioned that I was really into the early web. And I, I used the internet prior to the web back in the early 90s, uh, late 80s and early 90s. And the ethos there was that everyone was sharing and everyone was working together to create something interesting. And when the web came out, everyone I knew that understood the web was excited because we were going to create this new world order where we were going to share information and everyone was going to have a voice. Everyone was going to be able to, you know, participate in the conversation. And oh, I wish they didn't. <laughs> well, that may, or may, yeah, that may or may not be true. I'm not sure everyone should participate in the conversation, but let's, so just, say say, let's just say that it's a good thing if everyone participates. But um, no one anticipated that seven or eight companies would come to dominate the space the way it has. And I had by the time, by like 2010 or 2011, I was kind of disillusioned with the whole thing. I actually left the space. I wasn't working in the computer science area. Um, and then in 2015, I hear about Ethereum and I start hearing people talk about exactly the same things we were talking about 20 years earlier, how we're going to, you know, disintermediate power, how power was not going to be centralized and, and all of those things that people were talking about in early 2016 and late 2015, especially people like Joe Lubin, who was just, you know, if, if you listen to the interviews, he was talking about some really amazing stuff back in late 2015 and early 2016 and all the guys associated with the Dow and the Dow when it was first, when I first started looking at the Dow, it was a completely decentralized, uncontrolled, I call it an uncontrollable piece of software because there was no, um, I forget what they called them. The uh, There was people that had special privilege in the Dow at the end. What, what were they called? The, the moderators? Curators. 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 There were curators in the Dow who could make uh, it was, they were basically owners of the software and they could make decisions. But prior to that, the DAO was, had no curator. So the decisions were, were going to come from the entire population of the users. And I thought that that would build a piece of software that had never existed before in the world, which is a software controlled by, controlled by 45 or 50,000 users, which that was so exciting yeah i remember that i remember that sentiment that was like before maybe in february or march before it was released by the time it got released i think people kind of got scared and they put in the curators and i actually think that was unfortunate i mean i guess it was good in the end because there was a bug but it took away this sense that we were creating something that could only be controlled by all of us at the same time so 
we all, I guess the majority of the people I'd say who are listening to this understood that um, that software was written. It was deployed. People put money into it. A lot of people put money into it. And then a bug was found in the Solidity code or the, the, the EVM code that allowed for re-entrancy. And then all that money basically was taken out, uh, which subsequently moved into one of the hard forks of Ethereum, which split, split between ETH and ETC. Um, and here we are today. Uh, but I remember during the process, of the, there, was a, there was a group of us in the DAO Slack channel trying to figure out what was going on and how to mitigate it. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the difficulties you faced uh, trying to pull information from the blockchain? Because the blockchain has all the information, but you know, realistically, when you try and query it, it gets a bit difficult. Absolutely. And I remember you were doing some visualizations and stuff, yeah. which is I think probably why you and I met because I was so interested in what you were doing. Um, before I do that, let me just let me just say um, the other part of the DAO's sort of ethos was um, not only that no one could no one had special privilege, but that every single participant could see what was happening and had as much information as any other participant. And because of those two things, where only the whole community can control it, and the entire community understands it, then we were going to get this really amazing um, um, group decision making or wisdom of the masses, they were calling it stuff like that. So I that's, that's what was so surprising to me when the hack happened, because I thought it was true that you could that everyone could get the data easily, but it turned out not to be the case at all. And um, I won't go into this unless we unless you want me to. But it turns out to be internal transactions that are kind of the problem. You can't really just say, "Give me every transaction that happened." So you have to um, you have to scan the history of the chain looking for these internal transactions if you don't already have an index of the transactions. And at that time, there was no index of transactions. Even from Etherscan, there was no index of transactions. They didn't have internal transactions indexed. Yeah, I remember that. Because I mean, I was, I was doing a lot of distribution analysis on um, all the ICOs that were happening, I think a little bit after that. And... Um, it was, it was incredibly difficult to get an, an appropriate accounting of what happened within the smart contracts because of these internal transactions. That's right. So what happens like, it, um, and, and it manifested itself soon after the hack, because I think, um, I can't remember the first person who did an analysis. It might've been Bobby Puba or something, or maybe Nick Johnson did a, an analysis. And he said, here's all the transactions that happened on the Dow. And then Baki Puba did one and he said, I agree with all of Nick's transactions, plus here's a few more, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, Lyrical Polymath, his name is uh, Beltran. He, he wrote another one where he found more of these transactions than the previous two. So within a week of the DAO hack or maybe a, a couple of weeks of the DAO hack, there were three different accountings for what happened in the DAO. And they were all different and they all had different values and different numbers. 
And I was under the impression that we were building an 18 decimal place accurate accounting system. <laughs> right? Yeah. And well, maybe let me say it this way. An instantaneous every block, you know, 18 decimal place, 100% decentralized accounting system. That's what I thought we were building. And it just was absolutely not that. Yeah. What was the case? What was the cause for the discrepancy? Sure. So it turns out that uh, it was all these internal transactions. And um, so if, if I had a multi-sig wallet, I might send um, two transactions to the multi-sig wallet that ended up buying DAO tokens. Um, and then depending on when you bought a DAO token, you would have gotten... Um, let me see. I think um, every time someone bought a DAO token, a certain amount of that ether w went into a separate reserve account or something like that. So there were these things, like when you call a smart contract at the transaction level, you can easily find that. But what you can't easily find is all the things that happen under the transaction when the smart contract calls into other smart contracts. Yeah, or itself for that matter. Or, in, or back into itself as a good example with the DAO hack. I see, I see, that makes sense, okay. So like, and-, and basically simulate all the transactions then in order to find out where things were actually- Well, happening. because there's no index of what I call appearances. See, I call these things appearances of the address. So the DAO address appears in all of those um, internal transactions. But at the time, Etherscan wasn't indexing all of that stuff, and it still isn't actually. I find so that's what that full nodes usually try and keep track of. They keep different indexes of various things, or like archive they, nodes. They, sorry, archive nodes. They do, but they don't keep um, it's still indexes of what I call appearances. Yeah. So the only way to get those appearances is to literally scan every single transaction because you don't know where that thing is going to appear because a transaction against a wallet comes from JRush to the wallet. It doesn't index anything related to, you know, what the, what the meaning of the transaction is. And the more complex software you build in terms of how the different smart contracts are interacting with each other and the wallets that interact with the smart contracts, a bit multi-sigs and things like that, the more difficult it is to stress out, um, how money is flowing um, and keeping appropriate like audits of of where money goes from the from the initiator to the endpoint. I can't I can't agree with you more. That's exactly true. And I'll give you two perfect examples. So the set protocol, which is a, a, a recent thing that I was looking at, in a single transaction, it calls into a hundred and in some of their transactions, they call into more than a hundred other smart contracts. And well, actually they call into probably 10 and then those 10 call into 10 others or something. So it gets deeper and deeper, especially as DeFi starts to get more and more complicated. So set protocol calls Kyber network, which calls unit, or it calls Uniswap and then Kyber Network and then Kyber Network calls six internal smart contracts. So when I'm looking at the call trace of that thing, you know, I might find the address that I'm interested in 13 levels deep 
of the 17th smart contract that got called inside of a single transaction. And literally that's the only place that that address appears. But I wanna know about that because I'm anal retentive, 18 decimal place instantaneous, fully you know, decentralized accounting, right? So it gets really crazy. And then the other thing I'm noticing is uh, Etherscan has matured and it provides different interfaces to get different kinds of transactions. So they provide the top level transaction, they provide internal transactions, they provide token transfers, and they provide mining, mining transactions. Mm -hmm. But I just used um, ENS, the ENS smart contract which calls and has this structure where it calls into itself or into other smart contracts. And what I do is I do my scrape against my own address and I find seven or eight transactions or internal transactions in a, um, in the ENS, which don't appear from Etherscan. So I just find it really interesting that we created this thing that we can't actually query. So that's kind of what true blocks does. Okay. So like, that's a great way to introduce kind of like, okay, that's, that's the problem we've, we've discussed kind of, we're making this system that's difficult to query for things that people really want to know in order to keep good accounting systems. And if you're going to have digital money, you need good digital accounting and software that does this appropriately. So what, what have you done with true blocks to help mitigate some of this? Um, so there's kind of two parts to this. Uh, the first part was I just wanted to get the data in the depth and the quality that I wanted, which was every single thing that possibly happened. So that's one part. The second part is once I have that data, then I want to uh, understand how to share it with the world without becoming a centralizing, intermediating, you know, force the way that I think Etherscan is probably going to turn into. So there's kind of the accumulation of the data and then the distribution of the data. So there's two different things that happened. So how do I gather it and how do I scale it in such a way where people don't depend on me particularly, but they can do it themselves? Um, not only do they not um, rely on me or depend on me, they I can't possibly make them depend on me. That's what I wanted to build. Mm -hmm. I wanted to build it so that it would be impossible for anyone to capture the users. Because of that second part of the beauty of the DAO idea, which was that everyone could see everything without permission. Okay, so let me talk about the first part first, which is getting the data. So um, uh, this, I, I, I went down a number of uh, bad paths or, or um, unhappy dead paths. End, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dead end paths, exactly. Um, it took me a long time to realize that, I mean, you can't scan 8 million transact 8 million blocks. You just can't do that in a anything short of days, basically. So it, I had started where I was scanning and trying to store like a bloom filter at each block that contained a bloom filter of every address in the block. Mm -hmm. 
but that was way too slow. So, um, so we we went to um, first of all we we changed the code to Go instead of C plus plus, so it's now parallelized. So we can run like fifty processes against, and each block is unique or uh, easily handled separately. So we increase the speed by about fifty times over. So we can go, we can scrape the entire chain in a day and a half now. And that's at the resolution of block by block. That's or, every block. Okay. And then after, and then at every block, we get every transaction, and then we look at every transaction for anything that looks like an address. And there, there's a couple of places where it's easy to find, like the to and the from address. But there's also the input data, which has what are clearly addresses because they have 12 leading zeros in front of them, and they're on 32-byte boundaries in the input data. And this is where we get all of the all of the um, appearances that we find that EtherScan doesn't find comes from us looking in the input data, yeah. basically. Yeah. So then we get every receipt from every transaction. Then we get every log from every transaction. And the logs have some other information, like they have a data field. And that has the same quality as the input field where there's clear addresses in there. So we, we pick those off as well. Now we do get some false looking addresses, but I'd rather get more addresses, some of which are false than, than less. So we're a little bit permissive about what we call an address. Um, but then when we're doing, and then we store that, what we used to do is store that in a database index, okay? And now we have the second problem, which is distributing this thing. So if we have the data stored in a database index, the difficulty with, it, with that is that whenever we get a new address at a new block, uh, we have to insert that into the index, and that makes us sort the index, which changes the, if we wanted to put it on like IPFS or some kind of content addressable store, it changes the hash of where that store would be. So, and that to me makes it, it it's so much easier to just say, this is an immutable store of all the addresses that appeared prior to block 1 million or prior to block 2 million or something, and just share that hash with people. And then what I've done is I've made it impossible for me to take that data back or to withhold that data. I'm not explaining it well, I think, but. I think it's going well. It's, it's, it's one of those situations where like using uh, naive data stores isn't, it doesn't help you with a second part of your problem. So you need right. to find a way to break up all this information and it's a pro and it's, you know, I guess, um, relative indexing in a way that's easily accessible by others and doesn't change over time. So like most of the time you use a decentralized, like what you're currently using is a decentralized file storage, IPFS. And like, how do you, how are you breaking the blockchain up in such a way where people can, pull what they need to pull quickly. Right. So, um, yeah, this, this was another many, you know, crazy paths, but we ended up at something that feels okay. So at first, well, first of all, we just had to recognize that we couldn't create a single large index. 
because of that problem where if we insert new data, we lose the hash of the IPFS hash. So we just had to decide that we're going to create snapshots, basically. Um, and then we were creating snapshots every 1,000 blocks or every 10,000 blocks or whatever. The trouble with that is that the sizes of the files on the hard drive were wildly different depending on which 10,000 blocks you were storing together. So if you were storing the DDoS attacks from you know, October of 2016, 10,000 blocks might be three or four or 500 megabytes or even maybe as much as a gig of data or something. Maybe not quite that big, but... And then transactions from other periods for 10,000 blocks might be... Um, I'm just guessing, but 100,000K or something, or 100K, sorry. Yeah, depending on the, I guess, use of the network at that time is going to dictate yeah. how big those blocks end up being on your hard drive. That's right. So we were getting these files that were wildly different sizes. So if someone were to query this index and I would tell them, oh, you're in block 2.7 million, they'd have to download 100 megabytes of data. Whereas if I if they were in block 3,200,000, 3, they might get 100K. So that didn't seem, that didn't do what I wanted it to do, which was to make it fair. I want, I want it to be fair when people um, start distributing this data. And by fair, what I mean is each individual carries the part of the index that is proportionate to their usage. So Jay Rush interacted in 200 blocks across the whole chain. So I should be able to download just a, a small amount of the index because that's what I want. But CryptoKitties interacts in almost every block. So if they wanted to have this index, they should carry the burden of the whole index. So when they query my when they ask me which parts of the index should I use, I'm going to tell them every one. Whereas I might tell you that you should use part 10, 27, and 94. And I want all of those parts to be the same size. Because I want to, uh, it feels more fair to me that you don't accidentally bump into the DDoS attack. And are you able to do that? Uh -huh. Isn't a metric for this kind of stuff like gas consumed? Like, wouldn't that be a better way of measuring or maybe I'm misunderstanding something with regard to this? Well, I I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. It's a nice question. But um, what we, we decided was because when we do the query on this index, what we're querying for is appearances. Uh, we decided to make the files of equal size based on the number of appearances. So every one of these snapshots or chunks has about 500,000 appearances in it. And now it feels, and I haven't really done the mathematics, but I have an intuition that if every file is of equal size based on the number of appearances, then the likelihood of you hitting any of the particular files will be about the same, and it will be dependent on when you use the chain. What's nice about that, um, potentially, is someone running the software on their own computer 
um, who's a relatively new user, isn't necessarily burdened by the entire history of the blockchain um, in terms of what their 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 like disk space is involved, uh, unless they want to look into um, specific contracts that have existed for a long period of time. That's exactly right. So I kind of say you get what you want. Like if you want to query the first contract that ever existed and every appearance that it's had since then, then you would need the entire index or you'd need at least you'd need to know which portions of the index that that contract appears in. If you start tomorrow, then you just kind of care about from now until the end of time. And you should be able to start at the end, uh, start now. Um, there's a lot of complications, but um, something you mentioned about this that I that I really liked previously um, for this discussion was that, like, in the process of people looking at things and um, being encumbered by the burden associated with those things, they're simultaneously making it more available; those particular things more available to the network for others who might be interested. That's so interesting because that's exactly what IPFS kind of does naturally. So if I have one user and he has one copy of the index and it's, and, and the other thing is you can pin, IPFS allows you to pin data. So um, if I have one user and I pin every piece of data, there's one copy of this index across the whole planet earth but if I get a second user, now there's 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 not two copies of the whole index, but there's two copies of the files that that second person wants to use. And, you know, it multiplies by the number of people that that use the system. So, it, like, naturally, it becomes more available as more and more people use it, which I which I also really like because that feels like it has legs kind of. Well, this is this is this, in my opinion, is closer to the original vision of what Ethereum was. Um, when they released the white paper, it wasn't just a blockchain; it was a blockchain, yeah. decentralized storage, and decentralized uh, messaging. Yes. And it, in order to build applications appropriately, at least with the ideals that it set out to do, you definitely, definitely need decentralized storage, so you can do things in a manner in which you're trying to do right now with true blocks. That's right. That's exactly right. And it's so interesting because yeah, we don't uh, have decentralized storage right now. And the IPFS is just an addressing system. And the actual true decentralized storage is just still pretty much a pipe dream. Although I know that Filecoin's working on it and storage has their possible solution. Like the, there's a lot of things out there that were in that white paper that just aren't as feasible as they seem to have originally thought. I, I agree with you. I kind of, um, not to be flippant, I'm truly not trying to be flippant, but I live 30 years in the future. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm actually, I get, I got what you're saying <laughs> with that. So basically he's thinking about what's what's coming. And I, I agree because I'm, I've been pushing real hard for decentralized file storage. In fact, we have yeah. an engineer at our company who's about to enter his PhD program. And you know, he's like, I think I'm gonna work on decentralized file storage because that's a, just an interesting problem. Um, and so like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but Again, I was referencing the original white paper and what you're trying to build. And like, these are things that are really difficult problems. And, um, you know, just uh, I yeah. really want to break things down in the indexing system that you just said with full replication, but you just can't guarantee the replication. Yeah, 
And I, I, I get that. Well, I, as it stands currently, even if the replication isn't there, does it perform better in terms of getting information from the blockchain than anything else that exists today as, a, as an individual user? So one thing that it does better than anything else that I know of is it's impossible for me to take it back or to withhold it once I give it to you, which I, I like because my biggest, one of my biggest concerns is that because of the way software gets built where you build things on top of other things um, and the fact that it's so completely centralized right now, the access to the data, um, we're building a system that's going to be completely centralized and we're not going to be able to get away from that if we're not careful, I, I think. So it's really important to me, this part where, uh, you know, if you have the hash of where the data is, I cannot get it back from you. That, that to me, now, whether that actually works in reality because IPFS does or doesn't work, um, I can't really fix that problem. I can just sort of, you know, try to help people understand what yeah. that might look like if we actually did things that way, instead of just falling back on web 2.0 API data delivery, which just doesn't work for me. Totally. I agree. And, and like the cool thing about IPFS is it's an addressing system that is the addressing system itself is decentralized. And if you query and get that IPFS, you get a file back and it doesn't check some to that address that you got because the address is literally a checksum then uh, you, you know the data is not correct. So it, it decentralizes the addressing and in doing so it makes things very, very um, secure from a decentralized system. But uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee liveness. It's got this safetyness built in, but not liveness built in because you can't guarantee availability. Um, and right. this, this lends to a question I think you would be really, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on based off of what you've told, told me so far. What does it mean to be decentralized? I was just going to actually talk about this for a second. So uh, it's really interesting when you start bringing the data local onto literally, I call it onto the hard drive of the user's machine. So to me, I really think it means where is the data on the hard drive? Which, which hard drive is the data on? Who, who owns the hard drive that the data is on? And if you're truly, truly decentralized, you, every single user has the data on their hard drive. And no one can take it back. And the system, it, it's not even possible for the system to withhold the data. Um, so one of the things that I've learned because um, I've, I kind of made a commitment way back when that I was going to run a node. So I'm actually running nodes in my house. And um, the software I'm building is unlike software that you build for a web server environment. It's nothing like a web server piece of software because it's servicing a single user. So in a web environment, you're servicing thousands of users or hundreds of thousands of users. So you have to do all kinds of crazy stuff that you don't have to do if you're only servicing a single user. For example, you can't, um, <clears throat> I was just thinking about this. It's like, remember I was saying I was really into the early web. So 
prior to the early web, we were basically building software that had a single user. And when we went to the web, we discovered after a while that you couldn't do things the way that you would have done with a single user because you have 2,000 or 10,000 users hitting your server at the same exact time. So you have to protect against writing concurrently. You have to protect against, you have to be really fast when it comes to having the data available in memory, for example. You couldn't use the hard drive directly because it, the system would just bog down. And all of those things kind of disappear when you have a single user. So to me, in my most maximalist way, decentralization is a single user with data on their hard drive. And the ability to get, is it like, is it like the free distribution of software that allows them to do what they want to do? So, so it only works for a single context. Um, before that, there was no real like connectivity between applications. So you had a standalone application with standalone data on a standalone machine. So the web brings connectivity. So you can do all kinds of these crazy, you know, much broader applications. And the way I see it is the, the blockchain preserves that connectivity, but it brings the data back local all the way to the hard drive. So I ask your question again. Corey. No, oh, I already forgot what it was by listening. So just... um, I think. Um, so let's just like... talk, talk about TrueBlox for a second. So I'm, I'm still trying to grok your system, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think what I'm hearing is, is it's really just a great way to just do analysis on 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 the smart contract the depth of how 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 deep the accounting goes is it though is it though something that people are demanding at the moment and who do you see potentially using this um because from my perspective and this is probably incorrect this is really good for auditing the blockchain to uh for like regulators or for you know um see how terrorist funding is using it and that kind of thing um it's really good for that kind of stuff I'm kind of wondering uh, where would a person want to use this for their own personal accounting when at the end of the day, they really just care about who did I send the transaction to and what is my balance? Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's very, uh, it's difficult for me to find a, a real user to be perfectly honest, because um, the first thing I say to them is, oh, you have to be running your own node. And they say, well, I'm not going to do that. So it's kind of difficult for me to find users. Um, I feel like um, it's true that um, it's it feels like it would be most useful for analysis across the whole chain or, um, you know, sort of big data analysis. But going back to a single user on a single machine, I, Jay Rush, just want to know, like, what tokens do I own? What smart contracts have I been involved with? I want an entire history of everything that's ever happened on my accounts. I want to know, uh, one of the things I'm seeing is I own literally seven or 800 tokens because of airdrops. Oh, dude, see, now that's a really good product. In every one of my accounts. 
Dude, I have no idea across all the addresses I've ever encountered in my life how many of them got a little fractional amount of a token here or there, how much it sums up to. I have no way of saying what that balance is. There are people who have it way worse than me who might have, you know, thousands of dollars in assets just strewn across like a hundred different accounts. And like, there's no way to get the fractional assets out because you don't even know what ERC20 tokens exist on them. If I could just dump in a bunch of addresses and come out with, hey, here's, here's where all the... Here's all the contracts where that match the ERC twenty standard that your your address is in. I could be like, oh sweet, you mean I could withdraw all these? That's awesome. No, that's exactly right, and it's 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 exactly it's a perfect example of what internal transactions are like. Because if you read the ERC twenty token standard carefully, you'll see that it does not require the contract to generate a minting event or even a transfer on a mint. So what happens is a lot of these smart contracts, especially the early ones, were just dropping tokens without telling anybody. They weren't making an event. Yeah, they were so, most of the time they were just they were taking a pool of tokens, taking a snapshot of the blockchain at some point and then just transferring over across all of those people. And basically what that means is they were just inserting addresses into a map inside of their own smart contract. Yep not telling the addresses that they hold that token. Yeah. So now, um, and then, and then you want to even think about another thing that was crazy that my friend told me about is if I buy an ether at, you know, a hundred dollars three years ago, and then I use it for gas today, technically, I have to claim a gain on that piece of gas that I've used, to be honest. If you were like being anal retentive. Really anal retentive, but yeah. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm like, I'm I'm happily and proudly anal retentive. So <laughs> that kind of stuff does add up for organizations like, you know, well, they do for organizations. That's like, I mean, at some point, I think the tax people are probably gonna say, you know, that's a taxable gain. I mean, because it is, it's clearly a taxable gain. Um yeah, I agree. How do you keep track of that? You know, how do you, you don't. at this point you don't <laughs> You gotta have a personal accounting system. That's really complicated. And, uh, you know, if you could just at the end of the year, do one calculation rather than this, this gradual calculation that might be better for certain organizations. Although I well, do think a lot of organizations would rather just kind of keep a running tally of how that worked. Yeah. I want, I want that kind of quality and depth of insight into what's happening at every block. I want that every 14 seconds. So well, now here's, here's what I see, here's what I see happening. That level of um, insight will be available to people that have a lot of money and a lot of development talent and a lot of resources. But for the general population, there's no chance they're ever going to get that kind of level of detail. Not that they would want it necessarily, but they should be able to get it without having to pay someone else to get it. Because and when we talk about things like a Fed coin, like the federal government, these pennies add up and like they do care about this stuff. And if they're going to conduct audits on, a, on, on people in an automated fashion, for instance, let's say they use a an automated taxing tool through some future fed coin system they're going to need to keep track of these kind of level of detail items you know they just are uh, why, so and i always say why are we building 18 decimal place accuracy if we're going to use you know one tenth of one percent of the data just it doesn't make any okay. sense so anyway so there's not 
to be perfectly honest, there's not a lot of users. There's no users now, except for me and a couple of other people that have started, but then because you have to run your node, they kind of drift off. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to coordinate with people that provide node software. So like Infura and so forth. So I've talked to them in the past, um, but it, it's hard to figure where I fit in because I'm kind of so decentralizing. I just want to stay in this decentralizing world uh, because I can't figure it out any other way. If I complicate it by centralizing parts of it, I kind of feel like I'd lose focus on what I'm working on. So what are the next steps? Like, where do you see yourself going so that you can, you can kind of stay the path? Uh, yeah. And I'm curious how you, how you integrate future design of Ethereum into this, like sharding, like that's going to get really complicated for you really quick. <clears throat> so, um, I kind of, I, I make the argument and it's not an easy argument to make that if you think about it from a single user on a single machine, if they can interact with a sharded blockchain, then my software will interact in the same, at, at the same relationship as that single user will. Um, so you're making the argument that if they can pull it off, then your software will too. More easily than something like Etherscan that has to take on a burden of a thousand times more blockchains and they ever want to be decentralized in any way. So, so either we're going to end up with a super giant big data solution that is utterly not decentralized, or we're going to have to figure out how to interact with a single user from a single machine to get all of this data, to get the data that they want. So I say, I claim, and I don't know this because I don't think anybody knows anything about it, is I'm in the right position to actually end up surviving in a decentralized way. So if we it's were to say, to make, I admit. the only way, the only way forward, if we want to maintain a guise of decentralization is the method in which you're doing it. Any, anything else will lead to the same centralizing infrastructure we have today with web 2.0. That's, that's what, that's the argument you're making. I'm making the argument, let's go figure that, let's go look at it in a way where you actually force yourself to be in that position to understand if that's true. You know, I don't know that I fully have it all figured out by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I know I'm almost certain that putting it into a SQL database is never going to be the solution. Yeah. Most of the time, the only people who will do that are going to be the ones who are incentivized to do so, which means they're basically going to be the businesses that are making money at that time because they can afford the infrastructure required. And and why would they ever decentralize at that point? They have no impetus to do that. So, and you know, I'm coming from having seen nearly the exact same thing happen with the web from the very early web. This almost exactly the same thing happened. So, um, 
don't know. Actually, let's let's talk about that analogy you had pretty early on. Like, you know, used to be that you know if you owned a simple computer, of course those are very rare. Um, you could throw up a Gopher site or something, you know, and just you know, there's always also services like Prodigy and CompuServe and all these things like popping up and then AOL that's sort of like um, get people online and they were central services and they were very, very much, you know, and then, but the, you're right. Like the media itself, the actual content itself was very democratized back then. You could post literally anything. And as long as it wasn't too illegal, people would leave it alone. Still, that's kind of the case, but the people controlling the point of entry have reduced to a handful of mostly people in Silicon Valley or China. Um, and so uh, we see this, uh, everything's starting to coalesce to a, a handful of, of centralized organizations to curate and own the content and uh, that we are giving them for free. And we see a same kind of thing sometimes as almost happening in the blockchain world. So we talk about all this talk of decentralization what do you feel about uh, the idea that it only takes like three or four phone calls to specific owners of mining pools in Ethereum if you want to revert a single transaction? How do you feel like decentralization will with, can withstand the same uh, coalescing effect of this, 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 uh, this people coming together and building these centralized organizations to have actual control over the systems that, that are being utilized, intended to be utilized in a democratic way. Yeah, I, 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 I told someone earlier that, um, you know, a generation ago, which would have been in the 90s, there was, you know, X number of people that were on fire about these kinds of ideas. And now a generation later, there's X times 100 people that are, or X times 1,000. So maybe we might descend back into this centralized place but hopefully in another generation we have ten thousand times x people that are you know it may be a multi-generational thing because i think um the the debt and then the other thing i think that's really interesting is the blockchain itself and this sort of uh, cryptographically secure data and data that can't be modified and going back to when I first started listening to Joe Lubin talk about the what what this technology allows us to do, it it um it it's the same thing we were talking about a generation ago, but now we have this amazing new tool that can help us do it better. So I feel like we might make the mistake of falling back into the centralization. But we do have a much better tool this time, and we have a lot more people that are aware of it. And, um, you know, hopefully it uh, comes back again around. I really, I feel like it might have to come back again around because I actually think what we're building, if you just look objectively at what we're building, we're building a completely centralized system to surveil every human being with uh, every transaction they make. That's just what it feels like we're building. Unless we continue to make trade-offs in terms of convenience and user experience, it, it, it tends towards that, it seems. I think, I think the applications that we want to build, just like, just like in the 90s, the applications we want to build 
almost overpower the hardware's ability to deliver that. So that's one of the reasons why it's centralized is because we want to do these applications, but we can't do them because maybe IPFS doesn't really work yet. So maybe it takes a while till that works. And then, but by that time, we're already down a path that it's really hard to get back from. And, and no one's incentivized to re um, disintermediate the thing. So, so we might have to wait again until um, the whole thing has to disintermediate again in, in 15, 20 years when IPFS works or something like that. And I, I think that's why it took 10 years or 12 years from when the web first came out until Bitcoin came out because the hardware wasn't ready. That people were doing digital money back in the 90s, but I just don't think the hardware was ready. But in the 15 years in between, the hardware became, what, 10,000 or 100,000 times faster? So um, maybe that's what has to happen. I don't know. But anyway, my project is really, truly just let's commit to being completely decentralized. Let's just go see what it's like there, see if there's any interesting things we can find. Maybe I'll never get a user because it's just too hard to get. But I want to write about, I want to do a lot more writing than I, I used to do a lot more writing than I do now, but I want to get back to writing about what I've learned, you know, and uh, maybe it'll be useful to other people. What is the greatest lesson you've taken from this project so far, just in terms of like the, the ecosystem we're in? I, I really truly think that it's that uh, a decentralized piece of software deals with a single user. It's just a completely different way of thinking about what you're doing when you're building an application. And I don't think that's sunk into the ecosystem at all. So, okay. There's, there's context to that. Um, that I think may be, may be helpful for helping people understand why. And that is the software is still allowing you to communicate with whoever you want to communicate with. Social networks are not going to go away. People want to use software with the context of being able to communicate and transact and work with other people. Um, what you're saying is the application layer deals with a single individual and the infrastructure stack in which it talks to is handling all the communication between users. That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and if you're running a node locally, it's all local. And all of the, and the data that you're getting if, if you're writing an application that is straight against a locally running node, the data that you're getting is worldwide agreed to data. So you don't have to concern yourself with, you know, phony data. Yep. Yep. So local data that's confirmed in a, in a, in a global consensus network. Yep. That's what we're building. I call it hiding behind the node. So I want to hide. I want my application to hide behind the node. Um, I want it to rely only on data from the node. Now, right because now, that's where it's not. You have, you have consistency across or like guarantees around the data that comes through it. Yeah, but now you have to build a really different kind of piece of software because, um, you know, like if I wanted to communicate with you only through the node, you and I would have to have a piece of software that knows how to do that. Um, so the application developer has to write it so that, that it, that works. 
Uh, it's hard for me to explain. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is we well, should only interact through smart contracts or something, I guess. The problem I have with what you're saying is, is that, so that is correct, or a correct way of doing things. But I see the problem there being that you can't expect a user to have all the data. It's not a reasonable expectation um, in the long run especially if adoption, you know, TM happens uh, because these blockchains are quite large. Um, and even let's just say it's not a blockchain, it's just a some DAG system or whatever, like to contain, to hold the entire state of the, the network um, across all nodes, like the same and hold that locally is just, it's a lot of syncing, causes a lot of boot up times. The fact we can't run these on mobile devices is uh, a telling factor. Um, so I have to think that your explanation, although not completely wrong, and it will be a operational one, it's not the one that I would think would win out because ultimately what we're trying to do is decouple consensus, which is what, which is one half of what you're saying, from the data. And if you can decouple consensus from the data, you can query other people's data and be assured that it's that what you are doing is correct. And if they're coupled, like what you're suggesting, then you have this problem where massive nodes are required in order to do what would otherwise be traditionally um, basic operations. So I'm, I'm kind of, there's just like, there's, there's now multiple paradigms of how we're gonna develop this decentralized software forming. Yeah, and, like that's, that's, that's taking into account you want the entire state, right? Right, yeah. You don't, you don't have to, under what he's doing now, is you don't have to have the entire state. So what you're doing breaks up that state then. I, maybe I missed that part. I thought that you still need to run it. Well, I guess you still, need to run, you still need to run a full node. The initial creation of this index, uh, this um, snapshot index, somebody has to have the initial state, uh, the full state. Yeah. Because you have to scrape through the entire thing. And that's going to get increasingly difficult. But um, it's immutable data. So it's conceivable to me that human beings are smart enough to recognize that it's immutable and we can just check it once and just say, hey, you know what? This is it. This is the data. And now you can share that out in a, in a way that um, I, I look at consented to data or data that's already been consented to as um, so I think that's completely different data than data that has not been consented to. And any data that you derive from what I call consented to data can be trusted as much as the consented to data. So I think human beings can just choose to share this data in a way that maybe doesn't require anyone to have the full state except the initial person, the initial creation of, of what I call derived data, if I'm making any sense at all now. Yeah, garbage yeah, in, garbage out. So um, I wanted to just talk about something that uh, Colin said as well. Back in the day, no one on earth would ever have thought that we would share videos across the internet. So um, one of the things I say in response to not having the entire state on a single machine is in 30 years from now, we will have 
thousand terabyte hard drives, 995 terabytes of which are blockchain data, and not a single person on earth will care about that. Sure, but we'll also ideally have more people participating at a global scale. So Visa is only one part of the equation. If we get to 2,000 transactions per second, we're essentially matching what Visa does on an average day, although they can get up to 65,000 now. And, um, and then the, other, the other thing is that the transaction volume goes up the more people adopt. So yeah, we would have a thousand terabyte hard drives or whatever, but we're also facing the fact that we want people to use this and that increases the problem exponentially each time we do that. I, I completely agree. And I, I think there's a couple of things you could do. You, could, you, you don't have to store the entire history of every block for all time. Um, currently banks only store seven years of history. So you, at some point you have to cut the history off. Um, and then the smart contracts just have to figure out how to deal with that. Um, it's also not necessarily clear to me that the nodes operating by bringing every single piece of data onto the hard drive makes sense either. I don't agree. I, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I completely agree. Like that is exactly a lot of work to be looked at. Like what could the nodes possibly do to kind of help the whole world not fall down the path of centralization, I think. And I don't think there's been a lot of work done there. I totally agree. So yeah, centralization to me is a consensus problem. It's a governance and consensus problem. And um, that sure. data upkeep and management and it's file storage and all these other things that we can do uh, individually have a different tailored plan and even maybe on a network level have a different tailored plan, but ultimately coming to global consensus is kind of the ultimate goal here. Yeah. So I, you know, I always consider my project as much, uh, sort of thought project as it is a practical thing. It, it works for me as Corey saw on my machine and, uh, it works pretty well to do exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, it's very difficult for me to understand how to get people to use it because they have to commit to this being decentralized thing, which I don't think very many people care about, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, for those that are interested, I mean, I'd say a good cohort of the people who listen to us would be interested in at least trying or trying to understand more. Where can that go to reach out to you and learn more about TrueBlocks? Um, sure. You can go to our GitHub, which is, uh, I'll uh, post it. Do you have show notes or something? Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, I've written a fair amount about a lot of these ideas because I'm trying to communicate them out. So I have a medium thing that I'll share as well. And uh, you can go to trueblocks.io to get some information. All right. Um, that's a great way to wrap up. Kind of have to run out of time here. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I definitely appreciate the kind of fresh perspective of um, problems that, are, that we're seeing on the horizon and ways to maybe conduct ourselves now to potentially um, get past them. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. Thank you.